Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. Join me, your host, Alexia Gordon, as I chat with authors writing cozy, traditional, and historical mysteries. You won't find explicit sex or graphic violence. You will find intriguing authors and quality fiction. Thanks for listening. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host of the podcast. Author Iona Wishaw joins me in the corner today to chat about her new novel, To Track a Traitor, a Lane Winslow mystery. Welcome, Iona. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you. Now, To Track a Traitor is your 10th Lane Winslow mystery. Please introduce us to Lane and tell us what she's up to this time out. Well, Lane Winslow is a retired British spy, really. She worked for intelligence during the war, and she's moved off to Canada. And uh, during the course of the first 10 books, um, she uh, has various adventures. And one of them is marrying the local uh, inspector uh, of police in Nelson. And um, in this particular case, uh, Lane has uh, received a phone call from England, from Scotland, where her grandparents live. And they've said that her sister came to visit, but she's disappeared. So Lane is going to have to go to Scotland to find out what's happened to her annoying sister. (laughs) That sounds exciting. (laughs) Um, and I, I hope her sister's not so annoying that she doesn't want to find her. Uh, well, you know, she complains all the way through about the sister, um, but they haven't seen each other in 10 years because the sister went off to South Africa at the beginning of the war and Lane stayed in England and worked in Europe. So she hasn't seen her sister for 10 years. She knows nothing about her life. So she's going to get quite a big surprise. Wow. Now, your mysteries have been compared to Louise Penny, Jacqueline Winspear, and Carrie Greenwood. Uh, so who are some of your influences? Um, well, some of my favorite mystery writers are, are some old classics, uh, like I love uh, Dorothy L. Sayers, for example. Uh, and... Um, Geez, you know, I read so many mystery books and I love so many. I mean, I love things from Longmire to um, Agatha Christie to uh, lots of new writers that are out there. So it's very hard to say what my main influences would be. Uh, but I should also add a childhood influence, Nancy Drew. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so many of us, uh, Nancy Drew was our gateway uh, drug. Into a gateway drug, exactly. <laughs> I'm not surprised anyway, that, that you are a fan of, of the Golden Age uh, uh, mystery classics uh, because your your novel is, is set in the 1940s and parts are also set in 1917. Uh, so what's it like writing a story that goes back and forth between two different historical time periods? 
Uh, I really enjoy it. What I try to do is, uh, you know, when I've got a character, I want my readers to understand a little bit about the character. And one of the ways that you can do that, rather than just say, explaining about something that might have happened in the past, you know, she had done this, she had done that. Instead of that, I go right into a, a previous uh, period. So let's say 1917, where you're suddenly in that person's life and you're seeing something that happened to them. And as a reader, then you go, okay, well, that was interesting. I wonder why that's important. And you kind of carry it through uh, in your following of the story because it's a kind of clue, really. And I just enjoy dropping into scenes, you know, as if I'd walked suddenly into someone's house and seen them at their lives, you know, um, it's just something I really enjoy. I mean, and I really enjoy history. So it's the other thing is, it's, it's like putting myself in that situation for a spell. And that actually leads into my next question. I mean, do you, do you get so immersed uh, in the time, the historical time period that you're writing about that, that you kind of forget you're in the 21st century writing about the past? Uh, I think, yes, I'm going to, I haven't been asked that question before, Alexia, very good. Um, I think, yes, um, I think I do. And that's actually important for my books because, you know, one of the problems about writing something that's taking place in a historical context before our technological time is that you don't have all the recourses of the modern world to help you. So as long as I'm in that historical frame of mind, it's easier for me to find solutions that aren't, oh my gosh, where's my cell phone, uh, which nobody had before, you know, 1990 or whatever it is. So uh, I think I do get lost there. And I want to, because I want people to feel the details in the same way that I do. And I'm laughing a little bit because uh, my little, you know, snafu getting this interview started on my cell phone. I, I kind of miss a hardwired landline where it would have been easy just to pick it up and call you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, uh, when you, when you get so immersed um, in the historical time period and, and create a novel that is, you know, truly feels like you were back then, how do you keep that relatable to modern readers? You know, one, one criticism some people have of some historical novels is, you know, it's kind of, the, the historical part sort of window dressing, but they're really modern people kind of play acting it being back when. So how, how do you kind of keep it relatable uh, to the modern readers, um, especially given that you do get so immersed in the historical uh, setting? Well, I think there's a couple of ways. I think one of the things that people may find slightly exhausting about some historical uh, anything, any kind of uh, historical novel, is there's so many details, uh, you know, where the author was, trying so hard to introduce so many uh, and I just talked about details in my in my previous uh, remarks but uh, you know there's the naming of all kinds of different things and all kinds of historical details and maybe political or whatever the details are and I think what happens for a lot of readers readers is their eyes just kind of glaze over you know and they they it's just too much so what I try very hard to do is to make sure that if I do have 
um, some historical reference, like something that happened historically, that I only give enough details that are relevant to the story I'm writing, rather than try to overwhelm uh, the reader with all these details about a historical event. So I only, you know, I use it very, very sparingly. So you're never pulled away from what's happening to the characters. So that's one of the techniques I use. And then the other thing I use is I try very hard to um, uh, preserve the language of the period so that people aren't pulled away from it. I think one of the things that I find uh, difficult when I'm reading a historical novel is if someone uses a very modern expression. And I'm right away snapped away from my sense of the of the period I'm reading about. So I'd say those are two things I try to do. Now I'm uh, going to make the assumption that when you you're doing your research, I mean you 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 have a lot more facts than you than you in, include in your stories. Um, but so so have when you're when you're researching these time periods, have you noticed differences? Well, I should take that back. Obviously, there are differences between 1917 and the 1940s, but have you noticed any similarities between the two? I mean, those were the, those were the two major world wars, which were, you know, just as, uh, you know, earth shattering to the world at the time as, you know, recent events have been to us. Have, have you noticed any similarities between them, despite the fact that they're, you know, separated by so many years? Well, I think the similarities are always going to be about people. You know, people respond to stresses. Uh, you know, historically in much the same way, because we're constructed a certain way, you know, we respond to, to fear, to violence, to love, to all of these kinds of emotions in, 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 in much the same way. So in that sense, you have that. And I think a big difference between the first war and the second war is that the first war was really the beginning of the, of the, you know, mass death technological type of war and by the second world war um you you had all that t- technology but i think people weren't as surprised by it and and had learned different ways to fight with it so you know those are the i mean wars are hardly cozy but those are the differences i think um and uh you know i mean i don't feel like any society has ever really been prepared for what happens when their soldiers come home as you know just from modern times how difficult it is to reintegrate warriors into society so and that's another i think real similarity i mean your 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 research sounds fascinating um it also sounds like from from reading your book jacket, like some of your research was in your own family's wartime archives. You, you, want, you care to tell us about that a little? I can tell you a little uh, for sure. Uh, one of the things is that my character, Lane Winslow, was actually originally inspired by my mother, who as a young woman had been drop dead gorgeous, could speak seven languages almost perfectly. And, uh, you know, who grew up in a very internationalist community, just like my character, Lane Winslow. And one of the things I learned about her late in life is that when she and my father were living in South Africa, Prior to the war, she actually got engaged in intelligence gathering uh, for the British, um, in which she would sort of pass herself off as a German girl because she spoke absolutely flawless German and would go to German officers uh, clubs and dues and so on to try to get information for the British. So that was the kind of work she did. And she probably continued 
it into the war when South Africa entered the war against Germany. Um, and, uh, you know, it was an interesting place, South Africa, because you had a whole population of people who actually supported the Germans. Um, and then it turns out that her father, my grandfather, was a longtime spy. Um, he was a businessman, but he also was a spy. Uh, for both world wars, he worked for MI6. And I just learned recently that he had two older brothers who also uh, worked for MI6. So, um, you know, somebody once asked me for details. And honestly, you know, if you have spies in the family, they never tell you anything. <laughs> you know, that's the problem. And my grandfather died in 1943. So that was uh, sometime before I was born. Um, you know, he died during the war. Uh, so we're, you know, we're still just learning a little bit about what that was all about, you know, but spies, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's, there's a reason my mother took till she was 86 to tell me about the South Africa thing she did. But how, how did family respond having you? I mean, I know you, they're disguised as, uh, you know, fictional characters, but how did they respond to having, uh, your, your family history, um, you know, form, form the basis for your series? Well, you know, in my family, uh, descendants of my mother, there's only me and my brother left and then our children. So my brother always thinks I glamorize our mother way too much. Um, (laughs) But uh, other than that, um, he, you know, he's 10 years older than me and he lived, he was born in South Africa and he, he, I thought he knew more of her relatives than I ever knew because I was born here in Canada and um, I would say, you know, did you ever meet our grandfather? No, he never did. He had no idea he was a spy. So, you know, that's what I mean. Even my much older brother never learned anything. Now, your family is perhaps uh, uh, a little different because everyone loves a good spy story. But how, how do you find that sort of kernel in a family story that gives it a, a universal appeal that, that everyone would be interested in? Well, I think it always goes back to the characters, doesn't it? I mean, uh, I, I try to write really, really engaging characters. And, you know, the feedback I get from readers is that that's what my characters are. They're very engaging. So, uh, you know, when I first started the books, it was really my mother herself as a person that inspired Lane Winslow. I never had this idea that Lane Winslow would go through her life doing things my mother did um, because she was very different. In some ways, I wrote the ideal mother in Lane Winslow, really. Um, but as I wrote along, I would realize that my mother did some spectacular things and I decided I would incorporate them. And, um, you know, so that's been very interesting to be able to just um, think a little bit more about how, like my mother was very, very resourceful and very, very brave. She she was courageous beyond belief, um, you know, and there have been a couple of periods in her life uh, when she was attacked or threatened, um, you know, once at knife point, once she was uh, almost kidnapped. And, you know, the way she got out of these things was absolutely phenomenal. And so I decided to include that kind of a spirit in her. And I think anybody writing a book that's fictional, 
um, can go back and look at their family and see what some of those family traits are, or even some of those events where their family member proved to be, uh, you know, very spirited and very, very brave and resourceful and include those things. Why not? It's a way of celebrating them. Now, you you mentioned MI6. So uh, speaking of them, um, I was listening to a podcast, uh, British Scandal, not too long ago, where they were talking about uh, Kim Philby, you know, one of the most uh, notorious uh, British right. spies who was with MI6 uh, while he was uh, also spying for the Soviets. Uh, one thing I was surprised about, though, was how many women were involved in espionage. Um, it was, was that common um that that women were i mean there were just as many female spies in that story as as males and i was i was i was surprised so have you found that i mean was that common for women to be involved in espionage Uh, it probably wasn't as common as for men uh for sure uh but there were a couple of things in the first world war um when they began to use women they found that people uh didn't expect women to do that kind of thing so so you know women had quite a bit of freedom to move around um and and do espionage type things because nobody suspected them and in the second war interestingly um hitler really didn't you know he he didn't create major roles for women he had some women spies and so on and so forth but you know his idea about what, what women should do was very very different so um you know i think that element of surprise was still there in the second world war that women could get under the radar uh, much more than men could because men were expected to be in, in uniform and fighting. So if you've got a man uh, wandering around not doing that, you've got a problem. And if he's in a uniform, he can hardly be a spy, if you see what I'm saying. But whereas a woman could get around a lot and do an awful lot. So I think they were very useful in that way. And here in Canada, I went to uh, Toronto. There's a a very famous historical house there where uh, during the early part of the war, they trained uh, a number of women in uh, sort of commando techniques um, and so on to go into the European theater. And, uh, you know, they were as, as, uh, well, I mean, they were trained to kill and all that kind of stuff. So it definitely was a thing. And I think it's because they could get around and not be suspected quite as much as men. Let's say sort of uh, took advantage of being underestimated. Exactly. What What are some other things about uh, uh, women? And you can't see my air quotes. I'm saying back then uh, that, that people might uh, be surprised to, to know. I think one of the things that people would be surprised to know, and I hear this uh, quite often when I'm speaking to groups of people, that uh, younger women, so I would say women under 40, uh, tend to think that I've I've been accused of having Lane uh, be doing things that a woman couldn't have done in those days. She was too independent. She was too free. She was too this. She was too that. And I think uh, women my age uh, know who all these women are who came out of the war. 
they were, you know, they had done things that women hadn't done before. They were working men's jobs. They were um, uh, in science. They were in in doing all kinds, you know, in um, code breaking and all of that. They were doing really important jobs. And so when they came out of the war, they weren't shrinking violets, you know. They were, by and large, expected to return to the sphere of the home. Uh, that didn't always work out, but they were much more um, uh, immune to kind of um, being pushed around, I think. You know, I mean, you couldn't have pushed my mother or any of my aunts around at all. They were absolute Amazons. And, you know, they lived in a time when a woman couldn't get a, couldn't get a loan for a car, in fact, I lived in a time when you couldn't get a loan for a car. I had to, in 1970s, I had to go ask my husband to co-sign a loan for me because the bank says you can't get any money without your husband. So that was just in the 70s, which isn't that long ago. I mean, it may be for many of your listeners, obviously, but um, so, so, and I think that, that, that um, this idea of women being really restricted is more something of the 1950s than the 1940s. I think women eventually were pushed back into the home, were discouraged from uh, seeking careers. Uh, you know, I went to school in the 60s and, you know, the big thing was you'd like to be a nurse or a teacher. Um, it, you know, it, so I think the women coming right out of the war were much more sturdy and stood up for themselves. In fact, a lot better than people ever expect. Yeah, I guess if you can uh, stand up to a, uh, a Nazi who's trying to kidnap you, you can stand up to just about anything. <laughs> That's right. A bank manager telling you, you can't get a loan. <laughs> well, what's, what's next for you and, and the uh, very independent uh, spirited uh, Lane Winslow? Well, I'm just thinking about that right now, actually. Uh, I always enjoyed the books where she travels. Uh, in the fourth book, she traveled to England because uh, Inspector Darling gets arrested for murder, a murder that he uh, uh, apparently committed during during battle, during the war. So she has to go over there, uh, and that's quite a fun book. And now this one, To Track a Traitor, she's over in England again, uh, tracking down her, her sister. Um, and then I've just finished the manuscript for one where she's at home in King's Cove in, in British Columbia. And I'm now thinking of, uh, you know, pushing her across the border, maybe having her go back to the States. I have one where she and Darling go and have a honeymoon in Tucson, which is quite a sweet little book, too. Well, where can people buy a copy of uh, To Track a Trader to uh, read while they're they're waiting for Elaine's uh, next adventure? Um, well, uh, if you're lucky, your independent bookstore has it. Uh, if not, your big box bookstore might have it. And uh, if not, you can certainly get it on Amazon. It's also available on Kindle. And I think very soon, almost simultaneously, the audio for it is going to come out. So that'll be at some point on Audible as well with all the rest of the books. But, you know, it's always nice to encourage your independent bookstore to, to have it. Somebody just came back from Chicago and they said they saw my books in a couple of independent stores. So. Oh, wonderful. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll actually also give a shout out to a uh, bookshop.org. Uh, Cause if uh, folks can't get to an independent bookstore, they can order them online through bookshop 
org and still help support indies. So. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that. That's wonderful. And uh, where can readers uh, connect with you to find out more about what's going on with you and your, your, your writing projects and, Sure. Uh, so my website is ionawishaw.ca or ionawishaw.com. And so it's I-O-N-A-W-H-I-S-H-A-W dot C-A. We'll get you there every time or .com, I believe, is also working. And there you can also you can read about my books. You can see some blogs that I've written in the past. And you can um, also send me a note through there. And I'm all I always answer my notes. Oh, wonderful. Well, that's all I have uh, for today. Iona, thank you so much for, for joining me in the corner to chat about uh, Lane and spies and Brave Women and and your new book, uh, To Track a Trader. Thank you so much for having me, Alexia. It was a great pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. My guest today was Iona Wishaw, author of To Track a Trader, a Lane Winslow mystery. Until next time, goodbye. you enjoyed this episode of the cozy corner with alexia gordon i'm alexia gordon your host please support the podcast by leaving a five-star rating or review on whatever platform you listen on follow the podcast on instagram at podcast underscore cozy on facebook at the cozy corner podcast and the web at the cozy corner with alexia gordon.com follow me at alexia gordon author on instagram AlexiaGordon.Writer on Facebook, and AlexiaGordon.Net on the web. Support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash author Alexia Gordon. And until next time, thanks for listening.